Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Rich Swarbinski with TMC here once again with the last week in mortgage today, our <laughs> weekly walk through all the latest happenings in the mortgage industry. And uh, each week, I am pleased to be joined by one of our lender members as my co-host. And this week, uh, one of our most popular network contributors and uh, always a guy that's going to bring a lot of insight, the Chief Lending Officer of PRMG, Kevin Peranio. Kevin, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. Happy to be here. Am I, am I nice and centered? I got my, I got my nice little uh, background, my virtual background from PRMG today. Look at that. And what what company pride? I love it. So, uh, no, it looked good. And uh, thanks again for joining us. And yeah, certainly no shortage of things going on in the mortgage industry. Always enjoy getting your insight on everything going on. And uh, as always, for our attendees, any comments, questions, thoughts, jokes anything, uh, please feel free to just bring it in the chat or the Q&A, and we will go ahead and voice it aloud. So, uh, KP, I want to start out by just getting your general thoughts on the year that we're now a little over a quarter into. Uh, Been a good start, I think, for the year coming off a record year for the industry, over $3.8 trillion in originations last year. MBA's official projections, their most latest for this year, uh, is about 3.3 trillion, so down roughly 14 percent from last year. I think within that, they predict purchase activity <laughs> up 16 and a half percent. They predict refis to be down about a third, uh, and rates to slowly trend up the 30-year fixed rate to about 3.7 percent throughout the course of the year. Uh, now that we're a little into it, what are your general thoughts on the outlook for 2021 broadly as an industry for us? Well, I, um, I, I've been using this phrase, uh, we start 21 on the run. <clears throat> you know, last year, about a year ago, we were just coming off a record April because of low interest rates due to uh, the Fed's actions. <clears throat> I think for most companies, April was probably the best month any company ever had in their history. For us, it was the first time we'd ever eclipsed a billion as a company in a month. We did 1.35. Um, and then May was a little bit of a, a pullback. And then, you know, this year... January, February, March, all of them over a billion each for us. So we started off this year with a carryover of last year. So I, I think the first six months are in the bag this year for absolutely um, you know, stunning numbers for everybody. And that's a good thing. It doesn't feel as hectic. It doesn't feel as crazy. Because you know, when you when you build up for an almost four trillion dollar year and then you're only gonna do whatever, you know, NBA projected, you said three point three trillion, you know, all those numbers obviously remain to be seen. But, you know, you are it's not as busy because you've staffed into it and you've leaned into it. And so it doesn't feel as hectic, but we're still very busy. But the underlying, um, I guess, theme there, and I talked about last time on my LinkedIn uh, video, is going to be margin compression. And so we may be doing a tremendous amount of business as a company. I mean, some of us might have our second best. Most of us should have our second best year ever in our existence. But the profitability might not be as good as, you know, uh, even 2019. So it just depends on you know your model and <clears throat> your efficiency and your cost structure, but I think that's that's the thing. All all those projects that we've been working on, all the vendor partners and all the initiatives that TMC and all of our leadership teams have been working on together for years, where they matter most was not last year because it's more about human capital, it's more about bodies. 
This year it matters as far as profitability because it will start to get razor thin as the year goes on. And did you grasp on to RPA and AI? Do you have um, any kind of offshoring? Do you have you know uh, a good secondary model? Do you have all the things that get that cost per loan down? And you know then we'll all start having hard conversations. You know, later on this year and next year, you know, we talk about LO comp, we talk about margins for branch managers. I mean, every one of us who runs a lender, we only can go so far, you know, and we have our floor of what our volume needs to be to be profitable. So all the tough conversations will be happening in the fall and the winter if they haven't already started. And that is really the undercurrent and the things that we're looking at and we're working on uh, right now and through the end of 2021. So true. What you just mentioned, projects, vendors, uh, tech initiatives, everything that lenders had planned for last year kind of got pushed to the back burner uh, with first the uncertainty of the pandemic and then just the crush of volume. Uh, and certainly that's what we're hearing from our members. They are just right now, they're still busy, which makes it a little bit more complex. Good thing, good problems to have, but really hyper-focused on whatever the top corporate initiatives they had that kind of got pushed to the back burner for last year. Uh, margins, I want to get into that a little bit more. I know you guys have a wholesale channel. I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, your retail channel, though, in general, what we're hearing from our members is they're starting to feel margin compression, but it's coming from a place of very lofty margins. They haven't felt it dramatically yet. Um, they feel like you know rates have come back down you know, pretty significantly here in May. Uh, it's led to a little bit more refi. They feel like maybe that's helped one, volume in general, and two, maybe the delay of the inevitable margin compression. Is that what you're seeing on your retail channel? Yeah, the retail channel, the the pricing complaints haven't been um, really that crazy. You know, obviously you have some states where traditionally margins are always thin, like Texas, for example. Texas is just a price-driven market. I'm from there. I'm from there originally. I'm born and raised in Dallas, and I started at First Magnus <clears throat> back in 2001. Um, in this industry in Austin, Texas, Texas has always been razor thin on margins. It's just super competitive. Their collateral is highly coveted in the secondary market. People get 30-year fixed, full dock, come hell or high water. No one's taking a home. They're going to pay that thing. If there's a last nickel in their pocket, they're paying the mortgage. So it's just a, it's just a, a, a very competitive market. But not all markets are like that. And uh, and so I would say, uh, you know, as far as uh, it, as far as the retail channels as a whole, that conversation will continue to evolve um, again as volume comes down. But then, you know, then you just got to take a step back. You know, what is the value proposition? You know, and, and you know, I always talk about the old adage in the um, in any industry. You know, it's cheaper, better, faster. Pick two. You can't you can't be cheaper and better, but then also faster. But if there's anything that Amazon has tried to solve, it's that you can be all three. And so I actually rearrange those words purposely. I say better first, then faster, then cheaper. If price is your number one value proposition, then you could go fight the fintech battles with all the dudes that are putting billions of dollars together and they just want to say, go to my website and slam through your stuff. But how does that help a home buyer? How does it help a first time home buyer? How does it help someone that needs you know, massaging of the deal? Where's the value? Where's you being local and providing a product? And it's also competitively priced plus you're fast. So the bar for us in our retail channel, in all channels, is to be better, faster, and cheaper. And that value is on us as leaders who run our lenders to make sure that our retail originators want to stay with us or else they will go somewhere else. 
Very well put. Uh, we had a question come in the chat that uh, actually takes me in the direction of where I wanted to go next. Uh, the question is, uh, what challenges are you having with delivering investment properties and second homes to the aggregators or the GSEs? Uh, certainly that was big news kind of bestowed upon the mortgage industry with little to no advance notice. A lot of our members you know, had 20% non-owner in their pipeline, scrambling to adjust, rumors of more changes potentially coming uh, as Mark Calabria may or may not be facing the end of his reign of terror at the head of the FHFA. Uh, how did the non-owner changes affect you? What are some of the things you've done to mitigate that? And then more broadly, what are your thoughts uh, on just everything going on with, with the GSEs right now at the direction of FHFA, uh, which is largely contrary to a lot of the other messaging and agendas and direction of the Biden administration's broader housing policy. Well, I'll, I'll you know, I, I personally haven't talked to anyone uh, directly with Fannie and Freddie, but I, I hear a lot. Um, you know, obviously we have a leadership team, and uh, so I, I'm I'm providing cover for Fannie and Freddie right now. But <clears throat> you know, look, we're all run teams here, and we know what it's like. You know, you're when you have failed leadership, you know, you go join another team. That happens to our branch vendors in the retail channel. And that's happening at Fannie and Freddie. Look at everyone leaving Fannie and Freddie. These people have been there for some of them decades. They're leaving. Why? Because it's a nightmare. You know, they're being asked on a whim to change, you know, decades of history and precedent setting. Does anyone think that a second home is uh, it, it, suddenly that much more risky overnight? No. Um, could it be later? Yes, it could be potentially. Uh, but you know, again, you know, the the mission that the FHFA has, and specifically Director Mark Calabria, he's still trying to carry out his mission that he was tasked with the prior administration. Um, you know, he is trying to make sure that they recap and release Fannie and Freddie and take it private. So whether you agree with that mission or not, whether you agree with the addendums to the PSPA that came out, you know, at the 11th hour in January when there was a, you know, transition from one administration to another, he's working on that mission. And, you know, he's um, he's a super smart guy. He's been in the business for you know a long time. He's in the weeds and he's doing what he was hired to do. It doesn't sit well with everybody. It sucks for us overnight to have to find a way to you know get rid of our excess seven percent of Fannie and Freddie secondly uh, second homes and non-owners. It's hard for us. Okay, I guess we got to start securitizing loans now. Can't sell the cash window because suddenly there's a you know. The GSCs that have had a mission to provide liquidity are suddenly not providing liquidity to the cash window. There's only liquidity provided to the way that the banks are more favorable for because they have the bigger balance sheets because you have to hold the asset for a longer period of time, which comes with risk, as we saw a year ago. So it's very hectic right now, and everyone is upset. There's no one that's happy with the pace of change. And to quote the Mortgage Banker Association, they've been asking and lobbying with FHFA for a longer runway. They need more time to implement and institute this 7% cap. Now, for us, we're fortunate because of our size that uh, just our numbers is about 12%, okay? So we take 7%, we sell it to Fannie and Freddie, and then we work out the rest with our large aggregator partners. We have longstanding relationships, and um, you know it, it has worked out for us. But we don't want to be adversely selected and take an inflow of everyone else's second home and non-owner business. So, of course, we had to add a hit. I think we added um, a 50-bit uh, hit initially for uh, second homes in our retail channel. Took care of our people first, and then uh, wholesale 
um, in correspondent channels. I think we're at two points. And obviously, the non-owners are much higher than that. So, uh, you know, we took care of our retail channel first on that specific instance, just like we did last year. You know, there are some really large lenders out there, you know, between um, UWM and Rocket and HomePoint and Caliber, a.k.a. now New Res, because they all got sold over to another hedge fund back company. You know, they, you know, we don't want their overflow. They're much larger than we are. As big as we're getting and we still act like a small lender, you know, if we put out a good price, we will get flooded. It will be at 10, 20, 15% before we know it on second and non-owners. So we had to, just like last year, we had to raise margins in our TPO channels higher. Then we raised our margins in retail and took care of our own people. We're doing the same thing with the hit for second home and non-owner. And that's how we're uh, navigating the waters that something are rocky again in what's supposed to be, you know, a nice orderly recovery coming out of a global recession pandemic. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, this is the last week in mortgage today. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative, joined this week by Chief Lending Officer for PRMG, Kevin Perenio. Kevin, any speculation, thoughts? Uh, you know, there's a case, obviously, uh, in the Supreme Court right now that stands to potentially figure out a few different things for the GSEs, the fate of the stockholders, and, uh, you know, if the presidential administration would have the latitude to replace the director. Uh, it feels like most people in the know feel like it's likely that the Biden administration would be able to make a change to the director. Uh, you know, once that case is resolved, um, a new director obviously would probably be in store if they have the ability to do so. Um, and it seems like, right, would the most likely path of a new director be still guiding the agencies towards exiting conservatorship, but maybe more the way it's been done in the past, more runway, more laid out, uh, you know, maybe some flexibility in and around the 7%, delays of some of the other stuff in the PSPA amendment. Do you see that as the most likely scenario if Calabria is replaced? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's all about checks and balances. I mean, our, our entire framework of our republic is based on checks and balances. And where's the check? on this power. I mean, you know, potentially, I don't know, I'm not behind the scenes at FHFA, but potentially one man taxed the entire American homeownership uh, via, you know, an adverse market fee of 50 basis points on refinances through Fannie and Freddie. One person could have done that. Now, I'm not saying he did. He's the spokesman. He's the leader. He's the face. So in essence, that's what it looks like. It may have been, you know, a healthy discussion and everyone agreed on it. I don't really know. But our government, our republic is based on checks and balances of power. And if there is no check on an individual that can have that kind of power, a taxation without representation, which is, I mean, Lily, we went to war over that, you know. So uh, I, I just I just don't I don't see how um, after a precedent being set already with the CFPB director that you don't need to be fired for cause. You could be fired at will uh, by the administration. Why would the administration have oversight on a government agency? Um, that has so much power in one person, or else there'd be no check and balance on that power. If you notice, Treasury has been very silent. They haven't said anything about anything. They aren't talking about anything we're talking about. They're waiting for this case to be settled before they decide what to do. That's what's happening. I don't know that for a fact, but that's just my um, intuition. No one's told me that, but I mean, their silence is deafening. So, um, and it speaks volumes as far as you know what they're doing. So, I I, I think uh, the precedent was already set. Uh, you know, we have a, um, uh, you know, a Supreme Court that's now um, is constitutional um, jurist leaning. 
you know, don't believe all the hype about the politics that, oh, Roe v. Wade's going to get thrown out just because everyone's so-and-so, like all that kind of stuff. It's about the Constitution. It's about the framework. It's about following the rules that was set to create our republic. So, um, you know, do states have the rights to make the decision? Yes. Are there checks and balances of power? Like, for example, a one person single director in a government agency? Yes. And the precedent's already been set in the Supreme Court. So I, I, I think Treasury's just waiting for that outcome, which is supposed to come no later than next month. And then we'll see, I'm sure, going through the summer, some sweeping changes in housing and policy. Kevin, we recently uh, conducted a very comprehensive survey, sent it to yourself and about 600 other key kind of handpicked leaders and decision makers from within our 230 lender members across America, uh, seeking to take their temperature, their pulse on the current state of the mortgage industry, the issues that are most top of mind to them as we head into the heart of spring buying season going uh, off the heels of a record year, really a, a very tumultuous climate right now, a lot going on. One of the issues that catapulted up the priority list for our members from the last time we did this, <coughs> is just fair lending oversight. And for good reason, uh, the new iteration of the CFPB uh, really has been banging this drum pretty hard uh, since they took control of that office. Uh, seeking uh, you know a fair uh, playing field for uh, all home buyers in America and uh, you know really making sure that uh, you know everybody's getting the same opportunity to borrow money and finance the American dream uh, you know just in talking to our members our depository just as old hat as somebody that ran lending for a depository I think I went through four fair lending audits my last six years at the bank I was at um, you know, our depositories are like, yeah, I know this is what we've been going through. Our IMB members, though, it's caught their attention and talking to them over the course of these last several weeks. It's uh, an issue that they're, you know, kind of scheming around behind the scenes and, uh, you know, starting to develop policies, procedures, reporting. Um, how have you guys viewed the issue at PRMG? Is there anything that you had done in the past that you're just continuing to do or that you've implemented recently in anticipation of more regulatory oversight, especially as it relates to fair lending and fair housing? Well, I mean, everything you know revolves around uh, taking care of the consumer. And as long as everyone's doing right by the consumer and you have controls and measures within your organization to ensure that that happens, and when it doesn't happen, that you were able to recognize it self-report and then correct whatever happened, if anything happened, then I don't think anyone has anything to worry about. You know, I, I, um, I, I don't, I don't buy into the hype of media, uh, and, you know, people that politicize and, you know, most of the voices that yelling the loudest, you know, they're, they're having an agenda on their own or they're very, um, extreme ideologue, you know, one way or the other. And of course in the media, it's all for clicks, right? So, you know, we have tabloids in our industry and the headlines always get to click it. The reality is, uh, yeah, we do have a tougher uh, administration and uh, when it comes to enforcement action, they've said as much. I want to see what they do. Our actions speak louder than words. You know, we're dealing with politicians. We're dealing with people that need to cater to their base. We need, we're dealing with people that want to get reelected, you know, in two years uh, or less than that now. So what I want to see is what are the actual enforcement actions? And so obviously the last four years, the CFP director, you know, Kathy Craninger, uh, it was a very uh, laissez-faire um, attitude, but they did have enforcement actions and they went after people that, I um, mean, organizations that, you know, did wrong by the consumer. 
And everyone looks to those enforcement actions the last four years and goes, yeah, that was pretty crazy. We let's look at the prior administration when the CPB was created. What were the enforcement actions then? Uh, by and large, the ones that really impacted the mortgage industry were False Claims Act uh, lawsuits. So, you know, I, I can tell you, you know, through experience that if you self-report and you do right by the consumer, you're not going to have anything to worry about. And um, I will tell you that that is that is the key to making sure that, you know, you don't have some big multi-million dollar lawsuit, you know, uh, creeping around the corner. And so, uh, you know, again, from what I've read, they want to go after, you know, the, the worst of the worst debt collectors. I mean, you know, the, all the phone calls that people get out there, the harassing, you know, credit agencies. If you are a servicer and you're getting a lot of complaints, you know, you may get on the radar. You know, those are the things that you have to watch out for, I think, on this call or else most of it, uh, in my opinion, is hype until I see some actual uh, enforcement actions and then we can read the tea leaves. And, and I'll just leave on this note. I remember I was at a NAM uh, trade show <coughs> excuse me, in Las Vegas about, oh, gosh, maybe seven, six, seven years ago. And there was someone from the CFPB there and they were talking to a room and I just stood up. I said, hey. You know, why don't you just tell us what your interpretation is of the rule instead of bust us afterwards and then say, there isn't a lender out there that doesn't want to know what to do. Just tell us what to do. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. And then you don't have to worry about busting anybody. That's it. Just tell us exactly what you think is right and wrong. Just tell us, write it down, tell us. But, you know, they didn't have that attitude. It was a whole gotcha environment, you know, back in, uh, you know, the, that early days. And so I hope we don't go that far back to the gotcha environment where they're just looking to bust people. And that's just stupid. It doesn't do anything. You're, you're actually allowing people to get harmed in the process before you then take someone to task and then bust them. Tell us now so no one ever gets harmed or else, you know, you know, you could go on to say that maybe they're even implicit. So, you know, when it comes to vague interpretations of regulations, I think that's where we could use um, some great outreach from great organizations uh, like TMC and some others that I'm involved in to get interpretations of things that are still vague. Because nobody wants to do wrong by the consumer that I know. Nobody in TMC. No one I know, I know I don't know any fraudsters that want to purposely go out and hurt consumers. If you think we are, you know, let us know and then we'll we'll work through it. This is the last week in mortgage today. I'm Rich Swarvinsky with the Mortgage Collaborative here with PRMG Chief Lending Officer Kevin Perenio. Uh, we've got about six, seven minutes left with Kevin. Any comments, questions, thoughts? Uh, feel free to type them in the chat or the Q and A, uh, and we'll put <coughs> them aloud. Kevin uh, Redfin came out with the report. I think it was yesterday or today. Seventy-five percent of homes uh, over the course of the last month involved in some sort of bidding war that I think was defined by more than a handful of offers above asking price, kind of batty what's going on right now in the housing market. Uh, values are obviously uh, moving upward at a very healthy clip. Uh, you know, a couple different schools of thought regarding home values. Uh, one is that they're inflated and there's going to be a big correction and the, to what severity the opinions are divided there. There's another that is, listen, one of the byproducts of the pandemic is homes and housing just it became more valuable because people find more value in their home. And this is an increase that you may see a leveling off down the road, but no correction. What camp are you in as it regards to just home prices nationally in general? Yeah, I'm definitely in the latter camp. I mean, there's no bust. There's no bubble. There's no crash. It's not coming. You know, 2008 is calling and they want your uh, mindset back. You know, like that was so long ago. You know, I, I saw a crazy stat that 
for pretty much every decade of time, there was 20 to 25 million homes created, uh, the new construction homes in a decade, right? So uh, in the 2010 to 2020 decade, it was something like, like 5 million new homes are created. I mean, something, something crazy. I mean, you know, so, so, so there's the supply aspect of it, right? Um, obviously, we have a wave of demand because of low rates, but rates are going to be relatively low. We may never see a rate above 4.5% ever again. The, you know, the Fed, our, our federal debt, debt and deficit, we can't afford interest rate that high. So I just, I, I, you know, I can't imagine how much higher it will allow to even go. The demand will be there historically from rate perspective. But this is the thing that nobody talks about. Um, Logan Murashami over at Housing Wire does a great job of this. He, he was a great housing analyst for years. And then Housing Wire noticed him and then scooped him up on their payroll because, you know, he really knows what he's talking about. It, this is a demographic wave. This is a demographic wave. The first time home buyer age is 33. For like seven years in a row, the number of people that turn 33 every year goes up and up and up. This is a massive demographics wave heading at the same time a housing supply shortage is hit, meeting with historically low interest rates, which are going to remain historically low. So, you know, people just buy houses and, you know, our population is growing. It's not you know, growing by leaps and bounds, but we're still growing. The census data shows that there's population growth. So I just don't see anything happen. The only thing that would disrupt this, the only thing that would disrupt this is if, you know, like those 3D printed homes or like the super fast, incredibly quick uh, constructed homes that are quality and that people like, and that maybe have a smaller footprint and a smaller price point, that would drive demand and bring the median home price down. That is the only thing I see that could create a crash, if you will. And that that's going to take years to happen because the builders got absolutely annihilated in 07 and 08. There was no bailout for the builders. They only bailed out the banks and the lenders. They got crushed. So they had been taking their sweet old time building new units because they don't want to get crushed again. And wh- why not? Look at the profit they're making. They're killing it. So I just, this is going on, this is going to go for years. I mean, at least two years before, if anything, a leveling off. But again, I just don't see a crash unless there's some disruption coming into the construction business. Kevin, about 15% of our members are like PRMG in that they have some sort of wholesale channel. For some, it's just small. Um, But what we've been hearing from those members is that it's a tough market right now just because, you know, you've got UWM and Rocket both recently went public. They're obviously sparring verbally and privately and jockeying for, you know, kind of that top spot. Um, And both are priced very aggressively in that quest. Um, making it tougher on those in the next tier or tiers. Uh, is that what you're seeing in your wholesale channel? What is uh, the margin climate there right now? Uh, we've ha- uh, had some others that have said they've had some, some success uh, starting to recruit brokers to become bankers again, uh, just because some feel like the mindset is that the wholesale channel is moving away from one where it's price and choice and and more of like mini branches for these big giant wholesale lenders. Uh, would welcome your thoughts and perspective on all that. Yeah, I, I'll I'll, I'll kind of start macro and then zoom back into what we're doing specifically as a three-channel lender. Um, I used to work for Dell Computers in 1999 when I lived in Austin, and I went through uh, a cycle. I was there at the end. When I first joined, 
Um, I only worked there for 18 months and I worked in the home sales division. So sat there, you know, age 22, my headset on, you'd see the commercial, dude, you're getting a Dell, you know, little Steven guy, the little smoker. And then you call in and I was on the phone. So, you know, we were selling computers for $2,000 to start tag a printer, tag on financing, tag on a warranty, you know, and then if you had a high close rate, you know, like I did at the highest close rate out of 800 reps, I won all the trips. Yay. Well, about a year later, Michael Dell said, you know, why do we have 10 computer makers? Like, there's no reason for me to allow this competition have to happen. I have a great systems in place. I have an assembly line. I can crush my competition. We're going to sell computers for 499 bucks, and we'll just see who's left. And one by one, I mean, you don't hear a gateway, HP Compact, they combine. Acer came out of nowhere because they're the cheap one. So it's I, I, I lived through this. And so I think the thought uh, at Rocket and uh, UWM is that they are going to just crush all the competition. And so, you know, but here's the thing. It all comes back to value. You know, if, if their systems and their price and their product mix uh, is good enough to give, let's, let's say they max it out between the two of them, 50% market share in the next five years. Okay. I think that's, that is probably the, I mean, 50% market share in a $1.2 trillion a year market. There's only 600 billion for everyone else to fight for. So, you know, where do you, where do you carve out your niche? And so I think where UWM has a, uh, an advantage is because they're, you know, they've dealt with local people. Winning local is the way you beat FinTech. So we're all local lenders. Here. We, you know, Rocket is like, I think I read somewhere in their public thing, they're like 90% refund. They're trying to build their wholesale channel because they need those local purchase money um, hunters. They don't have that. You know, it, it, the fintech is getting so good for us and our members here in TMC that we can fight with them on a technology standpoint. We can provide value and be local and have our own membership and our own leadership and our own culture where we work. And we can also provide optionality. Optionality isn't exclusive to the wholesale channel. You know, here we have literally seven different points of sale. Three of them you can only get at a wholesale, at, at an enterprise lender like us. You can't get when you have to pick the just one. So we have optionality. We have multiple CRMs. We have multiple ways of getting leads. We have multiple lead flow. We have multiple everything. We have optionality within our own walls. And then we have an awesome vibe and a cool culture. So that's how we're fighting you know, uh, on the retail channel. Now, having said that, we also have a wholesale channel. Because I think really the difference is either you want to, you're a cowboy, you're an entrepreneur, you want to go work for yourself and you want to have your own business and no one's going to tell you what to do. Great. The TPO channel is for you. And why stop at being a broker? Get a warehouse sign. Pricing's better. Go be a correspondent. In fact, go get an underwriter. It gets even better. Go If you really want to be an entrepreneur, start your own lender and go down that path. So we help people that want to do that. If you don't want to do that, you know, you want to focus on your thing. You love your processing team. You love your retail team. You love your branch manager. You can get your own dedicated underwriter. You can have your own little mini business without having all the headache of owning the business. Like a franchisee, except not so cookie cutter like McDonald's. That's our retail channel. So we have a saying, we're built by originators for originators. We serve originators however they want to be served. Anyone saying that one is better than the other, that's great. Say it. I want you to be proud of what you do. We just think that there's so it's such an abundant group of originators out there that we're trying to serve all three. And it's very hard to be a multi-channel lender, but you know we're trying. We're trying our best, and uh, we have really good retention rates in our channels, and we feel like we're positioned very well for the rest of this year and beyond. 
KP, as always, outstanding perspective. Love hearing you talk about the industry. Thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. To all our attendees, thank you for taking some time out. Uh, We're here every Tuesday live, 2 p.m. Eastern, the last week of Mortgage Today. Uh, Also upload all these videos to our YouTube channel and release them as podcasts as well, where I know listen a lot of you uh, view or listen that way as well. So until next week, have a great rest of the week, everyone. Take care. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.